Hello and welcome to the Soccer History USA podcast. On today's episode, Two Horse Race. Although the competition for the ASL crown was still close, Fall River had managed to put a little distance between themselves and second place Bethlehem Steel. Sam Mark's boys stood atop the table with 35 points, five ahead of the second place Steelmen. Another five points separated third place New York FC from the leaders. Surprise story Brooklyn Wanderers and disappointing JMP Coates came next with 19 points each. The New York Giants and Philadelphia Phillies had 11 while Newark remained bottom with just six. One reason why Fall River now seemed to be odds-on title winners was that they went nine games unbeaten to open 1924. The turn of the calendar page ushered in a return to form by Harold Britton. After scoring just three goals in the club's first 12 games, the former Chelsea man tallied seven in nine during the club's impressive run. Despite being 10 points off the leaders, New York FC would have been even farther behind had they not bettered Fall River's run by not losing in 10 straight games to start 1924. The Gothamite streak began with another Derby win, this time beating the hapless Giants 5-0 on January 6th. It marked the fifth time in all competitions this season that New York FC had emerged victorious against their crosstown rivals. Bart McGee opened the scoring just six minutes into the game by crashing one into the roof of the net after taking a pass from Tommy Duggan. Ten minutes later, Daniel McNiven finished off a delightful solo run by scoring just his fourth goal of the season. Things remained 2-0 in favor of NYFC until the referee blew for halftime. In a sign that he may have finally found his shooting boots, McNiven... Last year's top league scorer notched his second of the day in the 57th minute. McGee had an assist on the goal and later found Robert Hosey, who put New York up 4-0. McGee wasn't done, however, as he found the back of the net a second time, finishing off the 5-0 trouncing of the Giants. McGee was clearly man of the match, with an excellent performance as he featured in four of the team's five goals. In some ways, McGee's journey was a typical ASL story. Like many professionals, he had been born in Scotland, this time in Edinburgh. His family had a football pedigree as his father Jim earned a cap for Scotland in 1886 and captained victorious Hibernian in the Scottish Cup final of 1887. Clearly, the elder McGee had some serious skills, as evidenced by the time he scored five goals in 25 minutes during a charity cup tie. Jim McGee was also part of the unofficial world champion squad when Hibbs defeated England's Preston North End in 1887. Eventually, he came to the United States and brought the family over when Bart was just 12 years old. The younger McGee's career began with stints at New York Shipbuilding Company, Wolfenden Shore, and Hibernians of Philadelphia. Eventually, he signed with NYFC in 1922. McGee's brother Jimmy would also later play in the ASL, lining up for Philadelphia although not during the 1923-24 season. And now for some headlines from Off the Pitch. Grief in Moscow as communist leader Vladimir Lenin dies at age 54. Sobs and wailing could be heard at the All-Russian Congress after his death was confirmed. Plans are being made to inter his body in a special mausoleum in Red Square. 
One of the largest mergers in motion picture history was completed by Marcus Lowe, who will lead the new $65 million company to be known as Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, or MGM. In a statement, Lowe declared that the merger will react to the benefit of the exhibitor and through the exhibitor to the public. Tragedy in Castle Grove, Utah, after a series of explosions rocked a coal mine, killing 171 men. In addition to the American dead, victims also came from Greece, Italy, Japan, Austria, and the United Kingdom. The oldest killed was 73, and the youngest just 15. In sports, the first Olympic Winter Games opened in Chamonix, France. 258 athletes will compete in 16 events, including figure skating, Nordic skiing, and ice hockey. American Charles Jutraw won the competition's first gold medal in the 500-meter speed skate. Two of the season's biggest surprise teams have been the Brooklyn Wanderers and JMP Coates. Nathan Agar's squad had already surpassed their points total from last season with a quarter of the campaign still to come. Nevertheless, they started the new year in terrible form, failing to find the back of the net in their first three games while being outscored 11-0. Among the defeats was an understandable loss to league heavyweights Bethlehem Steel, but the run also included dropping games by identical 4-0 scores to the league's worst teams, Philadelphia and Newark. Despite the setbacks, they were able to turn it around and look to finish the year strong. Indeed, one pundit wrote that the club was better and more balanced than the standings showed. Overall, the Wanderers seem to be on an upward trajectory, and it will be interesting to see if it continues going forward. On the other side of things, the Pawtucket team, however, seemed to be suffering from a championship hangover after taking the title last year. Any hopes of repeating already seemed gone as the club currently sat tied for fourth, 16 points behind the leaders. A January match between the sides illustrated the diverging paths of the two club seasons. 1,000 hardy souls came out on a wintry day in Brooklyn to see the home side trounce the visitors by a score of 7-0, surprising even themselves, not to mention their most ardent supporters, said the Brooklyn Daily Eagle. The man of the match was Michael Cosgrove. The Scottish-born forward had spent time with Dundee Hibbs and Dundee North End before moving to Tottenham Hotspur in 1920. Later, he signed for Celtic, but left the club without making a first-team appearance. A riveter by trade, he came to the U.S. in July 1923. One wonders if that cold January day at Wanderers Field wasn't the game of Cosgrove's life. He scored the home team's opening goal, added the club's fourth just before halftime, and sealed his hat trick by netting Brooklyn's seventh of the day. He played just a single season in the ASL before returning to the UK, where he played for Aberdeen from 1925 to 1928, making 66 appearances and scoring five goals. Later, he lined up for Bristol Rovers before returning to the States in 1930. After finishing his pro career, he worked as a bank guard in Buffalo, New York. Today's sponsor is Moskowitz and Herbach Sporting Goods. We've got everything you want at prices you cannot duplicate. Basketball shirts made to order in any color combination and many specials in soccer and football goods. Visit our store at 512 Market Street in Philadelphia, and remember, M&H, sell it for less.
Just as the league had seemingly become a two-horse race between Bethlehem Steel and Fall River, the two clubs also battled it out in the season's cup competitions. Bethlehem Steel would eventually take home the American Association Cup, defeating the Marksmen 1-0. It would prove to be that storied competition's last real tournament. The two clubs also would eventually meet in the National Challenge Cup Eastern Final. Before we talk about that game, let's take a look at how the two sides reached the final. Fall River had the easier road. The only real sticking point was a 3-3 draw with JMP Coates in the tournament's opening round. After getting past the Pawtucket side, they cruised, beating teams such as Wyposset, Crompton, and Abbott Worsted. Bethlehem Steel's road to the final was a bit more challenging, but also featured a potentially historic accomplishment. The Christmas City side steamrolled early round opponents Kaywood Catholic and Fairhill by identical 7-0 scorelines. Next, they put out Philadelphia 5-0 in early December. The club had outscored its opponents 19-0, and much of that scoring had been done by just two players, Alex and Waddy Jackson. Waddy in particular was in red-hot form, putting three past Kaywood in the opening match, scoring a brace versus Fairhill, and adding three more against Philadelphia. Altogether, the two brothers tallied at least 11 of the team's 19 goals. Next up for Bethlehem Steel was a Christmas Day showdown at home versus New York FC. Waddy Jackson continued to score at a blistering pace, notching the opener on a breakaway in the game's fifth minute. The lead didn't last long, when just a short time later, Bart McGee found Tommy Duggan, who slotted home the equalizer. About ten minutes later, Archie Stark evaded his marker, last year's player of the year Jock Ferguson, and Duggan found him for the goal that put NYFC on top. As the whistle blew for halftime, the visitors led 2-1. to one. The Steelmen came out pressing hard to tie the game, and the breakthrough eventually came in the 55th minute, evening the score at 2. There are conflicting reports about who scored the goal. The New York Times credited it to Dan Carnahan, while the Bethlehem Globe gave it to Waddy Jackson. My feeling is that since the game was played in Bethlehem, and that the Times spelled Carnahan's name wrong, it was most likely Jackson who got the equalizer. Despite the home side's second-half dominance, they lacked a cutting edge and couldn't find a winner. After 30 minutes of extra time, the two squads were headed to a replay. 8,000 fans packed the New York Oval on December 30th to see the two clubs battle for the right to advance. Once again, Bethlehem Steel drew first blood as Tommy Maxwell scored off a corner just two minutes into the match. Just as in the previous game, the advantage stood for only a few minutes, before New York equalized through Tommy Duggan's header. After the opening flurry, the game settled down a bit until Dan McNiven gave the home side the lead 15 minutes later. NYFC maintained a 2-1 edge until the 38th minute when who else but Waddy Jackson scored his first of the game. New York keeper Bobby Goodert got his hands on the drive, but the slick ball slipped past and into the net. The score at the half was 2-2, the exact same as the previous match. Team captain Dan Carnahan played Jackson in, and he scored his second, breaking the deadlock. The same two players combined again just two minutes later, as Jackson got his hat trick and Bethlehem Steel had a two-goal lead. NYFC, however, was not going down without a fight, especially in front of the home crowd. 
Eventually, they clawed one back on Hurd's drive, but just couldn't find the equalizer. Bethlehem Steel had advanced with the hard-fought 4-3 win. The press gushed over the game, with the New York Times declaring it an instant classic, replete with exciting situations, aggressive tactics, and brilliant teamwork. The Bethlehem Globe's Fred Nonemacher went one step further, writing that the game will be recorded in the annals of soccer in New York City as the greatest display ever witnessed. After the tough tie with New York, Bethlehem Steel supporters must have looked upon their next opponent with relief. The only thing that stood between the Steelmen and the Eastern Bracket final was lowly Newark, currently last in the league. On the other hand, maybe some saw this as a potential trap game, as if perhaps the club was looking forward to a potential matchup in the final versus Fall River. Indeed, whatever the reason, the game proved much tougher than many thought. Game day, January 26, 1924, was very cold, and the pitch was frozen solid. The match was played in Philadelphia, and the 2,000-person crowd included at least 500 Skeeter backers who made the trip from New Jersey. The weather and the pitch limited the vaunted Bethlehem machine and made for tough going. Nevertheless, Wunderkind Alex Jackson managed to open the scoring by converting a penalty. After that, however, the Christmas City Club was under the cosh as Newark fought desperately to equalize. Perhaps knowing that they were going nowhere in the league, the Jerseyites figured this was a chance to make something of what looked like a lost season. Although only about a quarter of the crowd, the team's aggressive and vicious supporters urged them on to even greater efforts. Eventually, the reward came in the 60th minute as Green headed home, tying the score. Not only had Newark elevated their game to earn a draw, but the Bethlehem Globe pointed out that the Steelmen were lucky not to have lost the game. The draw with Newark pointed out one of the challenges facing Bethlehem Steel. Because they were one of the most successful clubs in U.S. soccer history and had built a roster of talented and technical players, they had also become a marked team. The Philadelphia Inquirer noted that when the other teams couldn't match Bethlehem Steel's talent, they resorted to aggressive and often violent tactics, hoping to kick their way to victory. Whatever the reasons for the draw versus Newark, the Steelmen showed their quality in the replay. Determined to make amends, Bethlehem Steel attacked from the opening whistle, and only the heroics of Newark keeper Jimmy Douglas kept it from getting totally out of hand. In the end, the Jackson brothers scored all of the game's goals, each netting a hat-trick in the 6-0 win. At long last, the Eastern final soccer fans had anticipated had come. Fall River and Bethlehem Steel met at Dexter Park in New York. The Bethlehem Globe reported that 3,000 supporters traveled from Massachusetts along with a 35-piece brass band. In contrast, just 500 made the trip from Bethlehem. Overall, some press reports claimed that the crowd that day was 20,000, at the time the largest in U.S. soccer history. Other reports, however, claimed a lower figure of 15,000. As Roger Alloway notes, these figures were likely guesses. We do know that the stadium was originally built as a baseball stadium and had grandstand seating for 6,000 and possibly bleachers for 2,000 more. Whatever the true figure, it's safe to say that it was one of the most watched games in the early history of American soccer. Although it was a beautiful spring day, the field conditions were poor. Just as in the game against Newark, Bethlehem Steel came out flying. Waddy Jackson fired wide and later forced a fine save from Finlay Kerr 
while at the other end Frank McKenna failed to convert several good chances. After half an hour, Fall River opened the scoring. Dougie Campbell attacked down the right flank, cut inside, dribbled past Jock Ferguson, and as the keeper came out to cut him off, he calmly slipped the ball to Johnny Reed for the tap-in. Just before the half, Fall River doubled its advantage after Bethlehem Steel failed to clear a corner. The ball fell to McKenna, who whipped the ball back into the box, finding Campbell, who swept it into the corner of the net. The Spindle City boys led 2-0 at half. Bethlehem Steel regrouped during the break and came out determined to get back into the game. Whether it was the poor pitch or just an off day, the Steelmen couldn't buy a goal. Neil Turner missed an open net after Kerr fell down, and Malcolm Goldie wasted a golden opportunity heading over the bar. Bethlehem Steel had nine second-half corners, while Fall River had just three. Credit must be given to Fall River's backs, especially Ned Tate, Alex Kemp, and Bill McPherson, who marked Waddy Jackson out of the game and also limited the impact of his brother Alex. After 90 minutes, a great cheer must have went up from the Fall River section as the marksmen were headed to the cup final. Although Waddy Jackson failed to score in the final, he nevertheless notched 16 goals in eight games, a total that might have been and could still be a record in the tournament. The occasion of the final was unfortunately marred by an ugly incident just two minutes into the second half. Fall River halfback Alec Lorimer executed a crunching tackle on Tommy Maxwell. Maxwell's mates took exception to this, and an argument ensued. According to the Bethlehem Globe, Lorimer then deliberately kicked the ball straight into Maxwell's face while the ref's back was turned. The Bethlehem Steel man responded by punching Lorimer in the face, and as a result, both were sent off. A few weeks later, Fall River traveled to St. Louis to meet Vesper Buick, winners of the Western Bracket. 14,000 people saw the visitors emerge triumphant, beating the home side 4-2, thanks to a smooth-running attack and a well-nigh impenetrable defense. Fred Morley opened the scoring just six minutes in after heading home across from Dougie Campbell. Later, Tom Harris converted a penalty for Vesper, and the game was tied 1-1 after the first 45 minutes. Morley got his second shortly after the restart, but the lead didn't last long as the home team equalized less than 10 minutes later. Johnny Reed once again restored the Fall River advantage, but this time there would be no comeback for the Vesper squad as Harold Britton scored an insurance goal just before the final whistle. Fall River were national champions. 10,000 people welcomed the marksmen back to Fall River, and there were speeches, toasts, and celebrations sponsored by the local Chamber of Commerce. The game was filmed, and the brief footage uncovered by Steve Holroyd of the Front Row podcast is the oldest known footage of soccer in the United States. I'll post a link to the video on the SoccerHistoryUSA.org website. The Fall River had won the National Challenge Cup and also led the American Soccer League standings. Would they hold on to take the double? Find out on the next Soccer History USA podcast. Sources for today's program include Colin Joseph's The American Soccer League, www.bethlehemsteelsoccer.org, Roger Alloway's Corner Offices and Corner Kicks, and The New York Times. Music from archive.org. Thank you for listening to the Soccer History USA podcast. For more information, visit www.soccerhistoryusa.org and follow me on Twitter at Soccer History US. You can also like the podcast on Facebook. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. 
Thank you.